1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dekitria, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Sun Life Financial Q1 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call is Lee Chalmers, Senior Vice President Head of Investor Relations and Capital Management. Please go ahead, Ms. Chalmers.
0: Thank you, Degitria, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life Financial's Earnings Conference Call for the first quarter of 2020. Our earnings release and the slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at sunlife.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of our first quarter results by Dean Connor. President and Chief Executive Officer of Sun Life Financial. Following Dean's remarks, Kevin Strain, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, will present the financial results for the quarter. After the prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your questions on today's call. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I now turn things over to Dean.
2: Thanks, Lee, and good morning, everyone. Let me start with a heartfelt thank you to all of our frontline healthcare workers and those providing essential services. Their response to this crisis has been heroic, and we are eternally grateful. I also want to acknowledge the swift and bold actions taken by governments around the world to help bridge jobs, families, communities, and businesses through to the other side. Turning to slide four, here's how Sun Life has been responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our employees and advisors quickly mobilized to work from home to ensure that we continue to be there for clients. We, we were able to get our trading desks and call centers stood up immediately, and today twenty five excuse me, 95% of our people globally are working from home. Client service has continued to be strong. We rarely talk on these calls about the functions that really act as the central nervous system of the company including finance, risk, actuarial, ALM, legal and compliance, HR and technology. These teams at Sun Life have deep experience and expertise. They are the reason why we were able to move to work from home so seamlessly. They have adjusted rapidly to the new norm, for example, with our first and perhaps not our last virtual quarter end process. This remarkable effort is reflected by all of our employees and advisors around the world. Their laser-like focus on clients, their resilience, their capacity to care for one another has been truly amazing to watch. We've rolled out free virtual healthcare services to our Canadian employees. We also recognize that mental health is extremely important during these trying times and have created numerous resources for employees and families to support their mental well-being. Our clients need us more than ever and we're doing our very best to accommodate and anticipate their needs. The pace of change has been tremendous. For example, in Canada, we decided to roll out virtual health care en masse through our Lumino Health Platform. Doing a video consult with a nurse or physician supports physical distancing and lessens the load on Canada's emergency health services while helping our clients manage their, their health during a stressful time and 2 million Canadians who are members of a Sun Life Group benefits plan will be able to access this now along with their family members. We expanded our AI-driven underwriting model to cover more clients at larger face amounts with reduced need for lab tests, which are, of course, difficult to get right now. In the U.S., we made it easier for plan members to keep their benefits during temporary layoffs. We added COVID-19 to critical illness policies and extended grace periods for clients to make premium payments. We launched a series of town halls to explain to clients how disability benefits, paid family and medical leave and the government's new COVID-19 support all work together. In Asia, we've extended health coverage to include more hospitals and clinics, offered additional cash benefits to cover hospital expenses, expedited claims, waived waiting periods, and offered continued coverage for lapsed policies due to quarantine or hospitalization. We're working with regulators to expand the digitization of the end-to-end sales process, including replacing a wet signature with a digital one. In Hong Kong now, our clients can purchase designated insurance products anytime, anywhere, through the new digital sales system and interact remotely with our advisors. In asset management, Teams at MFS and SLC management have doubled down on client communication including the use of virtual tools with proactive outreach to individuals as well as webinars and other ways to provide our interpretation of market events. We're working with tenants, mortgageors, and other borrowers to find solutions when they can't meet their rent or monthly loan obligations. We've moved quickly to design and launch two new products in SLC management. We've also donated over $2 million to charities in the communities in which we operate to support at-risk populations and provide access to food banks. In the Philippines and China, we donated digital life insurance coverage to doctors, nurses, and other medical staff. So we're doing our part to be part of the solution. Today our clients need us more than ever and our purpose of helping clients achieve lifetime financial security and live healthier lives has served as our sun, our bright light during these challenging times. So with that, let's move to our first quarter results on slide five. Our reported net income of 391 million was down 37% from the first quarter of 2019, mostly due to the impact of equity market declines. Underlying net income of 770 million was up 7% over the first quarter of last year and underlying earnings per share were up 9% over the same period we generated an underlying return on equity of 14.2% for the quarter. And yesterday, we announced our common share dividend of 55 cents per share, consistent with the prior quarter. We came into this crisis in a position of strength. We didn't know when the markets would turn or what would cause them to turn, but over the past few years, we have been steadily reducing risk in our general account portfolio. For example, by selling down equities and moving up in credit quality. Our LICAT ratio at SLF remained unchanged from December 31st at 143%, a very strong level, well in excess of the supervisory minimum, and that includes $2.4 billion of excess cash at the holding company. Our low leverage ratio of 20.7% provides for significant capital flexibility. And our four-pillar strategy Provides us with balanced and diversified streams of earnings and cash flows with a business mix that is less sensitive to interest rates than many of our competitors. In the quarter, we grew wealth sales 66% over the prior year. And a lot of this growth came from MFS, which finished the quarter with record sales driven by continued strong performance and continued investments in client relationships. Barron's ranked MFS number one on its list of top fund families for 2020. And more importantly, for five-year and 10-year performance, MFS ranked second and fourth, respectively, marking the 11th time in 12 years that it has ranked top 10 or better for five- and 10-year performance. So a testament to their long-term focus and ability to generate alpha. Sun Life Global Investments, our Canadian retail wealth manager, also had a strong quarter with $1 billion in net flows, up 61% over the prior year, a quarter in which the industry overall saw net outflows. This growth was driven by our multi-channel distribution platform across GRS, segregated funds, and mutual funds, by improved wholesaler productivity, and by continued strong performance. As of March 31, 2020, five of our granite-managed portfolios received four-star ratings, and four MFS sub funds maintained their five-star Morningstar rating over the five-year trailing period. Insurance sales were slightly down from prior year at $776 million. This is mostly from lower large-case group benefit sales in Canada as well as lower stop-loss sales in the U.S. That said, the first quarter is typically lower for stop-loss sales, and overall this business has seen tremendous growth as evidenced by its reaching U.S. $2 billion of business in force in the quarter, which is a doubling in size over the past five years. In Q1 of this year, we combined our international and Hong Kong businesses in Asia under one leader, and we're now calling this International Hubs. This brings our high-net-worth businesses together, so we can offer our clients and distribution partners competitive solutions and services across geographies. Insurance sales in international hubs increased 148% over the prior year with increases from both Hong Kong and international. Before passing it to Kevin, I'd like to make two general points. First, when a crisis of great proportion occurs, this time a health, economic, and even humanitarian crisis, there is often a rush to judgment about how the world will be permanently changed. Amid all the speculation, there's one thing we believe to be absolutely true. The acceleration of everything digital, from how we advise clients to how we sell to how we provide solutions, pay claims and provide service, will be a permanent benefit coming out of the crisis. To be clear, most of our retail clients will still want to work with advisors, but advisor productivity and effectiveness will be turbocharged through data, digital and analytics. At Sun Life, we've invested a lot to digitize our business with industry-leading technology in many areas, and we will leverage this time to further accelerate the development and adoption of everything digital. And the second point is that, realistically, this will be a challenging year for financial institutions, and there will likely be reductions to sales and premium and AUM levels, credit impacts, and other experience. Kevin will speak to some of the early signals we've seen through to the end of April. I'd say that we've got confidence in our business model and think Sun Life is very well positioned to navigate through to the other side, given our business mix, our risk stance, balance sheet strength, and above all, our people and our culture. And with that, I'll
3: now turn the call over to Kevin, who will take us through the results. Thanks, Dean, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to start by echoing Dean's comments on COVID-19. The global pandemic is having a dramatic impact on many people's lives and our thoughts are with all those who are affected. These are very challenging times and Sun Life remains committed to doing what we can to support our clients, staff, advisors, and partners through this time while managing the business to deliver strong results for our shareholders. Turning to slide seven, we announced reported net income of $391 million for the first quarter, a decrease of 37% over the same period last year. Our reported net income was impacted by declining equity markets, partially offset by net interest rate impacts and negative ACMA. On an underlying net income basis, we we had earnings of $770 million, an increase of 7% from Q1 2019. An underlying EPS was $1.31, up 9%. Our underlying return on equity for the quarter was 14.2%. The growth in underlying net income was driven by higher investment returns and business growth. Investment returns were driven by investing activity gains, AFS gains, and improved credit experience, partially offset by losses on fixed income seed investments in surplus and foreign exchange losses on economic hedges. Business growth was driven by expected profit growth of 10% and new business gains. Mortality was a small loss on a few large claims in IFM in the U.S. Morbidity was overall positive, but down versus a strong first quarter last year. Expense experience was weaker on small variances across the businesses. Other experience was down primarily related to some experience losses in our Asian joint ventures and higher project spend. Book value per share increased 4% from year-end, mostly due to foreign exchange gains included in other comprehensive income. Capital ratios remain strong with Q1 LICAT ratios of 130% at SLA and 143% at SLF. Unchanged quarter over quarter as the impact of lower interest rates was offset by share buybacks and the widening of corporate spreads that we saw in the quarter. It is worth noting some of the actions taken by our regulator in response to COVID-19 related to capital. On March 13th, Aussie announced that they expect all federally regulated financial institutions in Canada to halt share buybacks and dividend increases for the time being. Further, on April 9, OSFI announced changes to capital requirements under the LICAT guideline. These changes provide capital relief for payment deferrals on mortgages, leases, and other loans, and on payment deferrals for insurance premiums to policyholders. by policyholders. This means that deferrals will continue to be treated as performing assets and therefore will not attract higher capital charges. OSFI also granted relief for participating lines of business, reducing the impact of a discontinuity in the LICAT ratio caused by a scenario switch related to interest rates. This change effectively smooths the impact of a scenario switch over six quarters. You'll recall that in the third quarter of 2019, we discussed the possibility of switching interest rate scenarios within our sensitivities, creating a discontinuity in LICAT results that would have caused an immediate drop in our ratio. While we did not experience a shift in the interest rate scenario in the first quarter of 2020, we did adopt the new guideline. SLF cash at the end of March was $2.4 billion, a slight increase since Q4. Prior to OSPI's announcement halting share buyback programs, we had repurchased $200 million worth of shares in the quarter under our NCIB. Our financial leverage ratio was 20.7%, down quarter over quarter, reflecting growth in total capital primarily related to accumulated OCI. Assets under management finished the quarter at $1.023 trillion, down by $76 billion, mostly from unfavorable market movements, partially offset by the impact of foreign exchange translation and business growth. Turning to slide eight, despite a challenging economic environment, we had reported net income growth in three of our four pillars and underlying net income growth in all four. On a reported net income basis, Canada's reported, reported a loss of $42 million in Q1, reflecting unfavorable market-related and ACMA impacts. Market-related impacts were mostly driven by the decline in equity markets, partially offset by the impacts of credit and swap spreads. Canada's underlying net income was of $256 million, was up 8%, driven by business growth and higher investing activity and AFS gains partially offset by lower net investment returns in surplus, unfavorable expense experience, and unfavorable morbidity experience in group benefits. The U.S. saw a 32% increase year-over-year in reported net income, driven by favorable market-related impacts, predominantly from widening credit spreads, partially offset by unfavorable ACMA impacts. In in enforced management for underlying net income, the U.S. had 7% growth driven by higher investing activity, higher AFS gains, and new business gains, partially offset by unfavorable mortality experience and and positive, but less favorable morbidity experience. Last year, we had elevated favorable morbidity experience in the first quarter of 2019, which we noted would revert to the mean over time. The after-tax profit margin for group benefits in the U.S. was 6.8% on a trailing 12-month basis, compared to 7.9% in the prior year. Asset management reported net, net income grew 9%, driven by favorable fair value adjustments on MFS share-based payment awards, partially offset by higher acquisition and integration costs related to the BGO acquisition and the pending infrared transaction. Our asset-managed businesses grew underlying income by 7%, driven by higher average net assets in MFS and higher income in SLC management, driven by the BGO acquisition that closed in 2019, partially offset by lower net investment returns in MFS seed capital, mostly driven by widening of credit spreads. Asia reported net income grew by 25%, stemming from growth in underlying net income, which increased 27% over the same period last year. This growth was driven by favorable credit experience, new business gains, primarily in international hubs, and improved mortality experience, partially offset by unfavorable joint venture experience. Slide 9 provides details on our sources of earnings. Expected profit of $816 million was up 10% year-over-year from, a, from a continued business growth, particularly in our Canadian and asset management businesses, which increased 16% and 12% respectively. Excluding the impacts of currency and asset management, expected profit increased 12% from the prior year. New business gains were $6 million in Q1 compared to the new business strain of $11 million last year, driven by higher gains in our U.S. business and lower strain in Asia as a result of higher sales in international hubs. Experience losses of $111 million pre-tax were largely driven by unfavorable market-related impacts, primarily from the recent decline in equity markets and interest rates, partially offset by the impact of credit spreads. Experience losses also include unfavorable credit experience, policyholder behavior, expense and other experience, offset by investing activity gains. ACMA of $66 million pre-tax for the quarter related to an increase in the provision for adverse deviation for fixed income asset credit spreads. The sharp increase in credit spreads during March meant credit spreads at the end of the quarter were outside the historical range, which drove higher credit spread experience gains during the quarter. The increase in credit spread provisions partially offset these experience gains in our source of earnings. Other in our source of earnings includes acquisition, integration, and restructuring costs, partially offset by favorable fair value adjustments on MFS share-based payment awards. The restructuring costs we recorded in our corporate segment include severance costs as a result of various ongoing projects initiated in the fourth quarter of 2019 to simplify our organizational structure and drive efficiencies. Earnings on surplus of $116 million were down $9 million compared to the first quarter of last year, driven by lower net investment returns on surplus assets and losses on seed investment returns as a result of widening credit spreads partially offset by higher AFS gains. Our effective tax rates on reported and underlying net income were 42% and 18.5% respectively. Our effective tax rate on reported net income reflected the impact of tax-exempt investment losses primarily driven by the widening of credit spreads. These losses were offset in actual liabilities on an after-tax basis. On an underlying basis, our effective tax rate was within our range of 15 to 20%. On slide 10, we show our sales results for the quarter. Total company insurance sales for the quarter were relatively flat year over year at $776 million, with Canadian sales down 19% due to the lower large case sales in our group benefits business and lower third party individual uh, insurance sales. First quarter sales in the US were up 2% on a constant currency basis, from the same period last year, as higher employment benefit sales were offset by lower sales uh, in our medical stop-loss business. We had strong individual insurance sales in Asia, up 22% on a constant currency basis, driven by strong growth in Hong Kong and international, as well as the Philippines. Wealth sales across the company increased 66% year over year, as Canada had strong sales across most product lines, including GRS, which saw heightened retained sales. MFS saw high retail and institutional sales, which drove to 65% growth in asset management sales on a constant currency basis. Overall, MFS experienced net inflows of U.S. $1.8 billion in the quarter, a significant improvement reflecting the strong retail net flows and moderate outflows from institutional clients. During the last two weeks of the quarter, MFS saw retail flows slow down due to market conditions but this slowdown was offset by better institutional flows as some clients rebalanced towards equities. Finally, wealth sales in Asia increased by $409 million or 22% year over year, excluding the favorable impacts of foreign exchange translation driven by money market sales in the Philippines and the pensions business in Hong Kong. Total BNB was $380 million in the first quarter of 2020, a decrease of 1% compared to the same period in 2019 reflecting lower BNB in the US on pricing margins and Canada from lower insurance sales, partially offset by higher BNB in Asia from higher sales in international hubs. Turning to slide 11, operating expenses of $1.7 billion were up 3% on a constant currency basis. Controllable expenses were also up 3% compared to the prior year and include our investments in digital as well as costs to support our growing businesses. Restructuring costs of $37 million this quarter are in addition to those we recorded in the fourth quarter of 2019. Cumulatively, we expect this will result in expense savings of approximately $85 million pre-tax with some savings starting to come in through 2020. In addition, we are taking a look at non-FTE related expenses um, and, and to achieve savings such as in travel, consulting, and slowing down some projects in a way to save costs during the year. Turn to slide 12, we've included a high level view of our invested assets as at the end of the quarter with some highlights on our debt and mortgage and loan portfolios as we are faced with heightened uncertainty on potential credit impacts in this recessionary environment. Overall, 97% of our fixed income portfolio is investment grade and our triple B exposure is skewed towards the higher end in terms of quality. 35% of our triple-B exposure is in private debt with strong collateral and covenant protections. Our portfolio of invested assets is well diversified and of higher quality, which is a testament to the work we've done over the years to de-risk the balance sheet, reduce our exposure to volatile sectors, and develop strong private loan origination capabilities. Turn to slide 13. We provide some additional details on sectors that we believe pose higher risk at this time. We've been preparing for late stages in the credit cycle for a while now, but we certainly did not anticipate the current crisis. We have taken deliberate and substantive steps to de-risk the portfolio. This includes reducing our triple our, our B minus rated securities by $1 billion and reducing our exposure to the energy sector by over 10 percent. The exposures we've included here are those we expect to be most affected by the slowing economy, social distancing measures, and lower oil prices. This includes our oil and gas exposures, in addition to aviation, hotels, restaurants, leisure, and certain real estate holdings. Approximately 97% of our debt securities and private loans across these sectors are investment-grade, with approximately 47% percent B rated And as I mentioned before, a good portion of our B rated portfolio is in private loans, which are well-collateralized and have strong covenants against them. Turning to slide 14, we are actively monitoring the impacts of COVID-19, and we know that a lot of you are interested in what April looks like for sales, claims, and other items impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. We think it is important we give you a view into what we are seeing. Throughout April, we have been able to continue sales activities using digital tools and processes. Overall, in the month of April, sales were mixed with total individual insurance sales and individual wealth sales at approximately 80% and 90% respectively of the prior year. We saw some markets growing as a result of digital tools, preexisting sales pipelines, repricing, and return to work efforts in China and Hong Kong, but some markets like the Philippines, India, Malaysia, and Indonesia saw significant declines in April uh, from strict quarantine protocols impacting face-to-face and bank assurance sales. For group benefits and pensions, April premium volumes and assets in force were relatively unchanged from the end of first quarter. As a result of the mixed experience and uncertain return to work time frames and economic conditions, Q2 sales levels remain uncertain at this time. To date, our mortality and morbidity cases has been small, amounting to less than 5% of our monthly average for mortality and disability claims paid and some of the additional covid-19 claims some of the additional covid-19 claims experience has been offset by lower claims in other areas q2 experience remains uncertain and will be greatly impacted by the jurisdictions and industries where we do business and the success these jurisdictions have in reducing the spread of the virus to support our clients who may be facing financial hardships we've extended grace periods for premium payment for individual insurance and group benefits clients for up to 90 days this extension of grace periods has not created a significant impact on premiums. Should we experience a prolonged period of non-payment, we may see increases in laps and other policyholder behavior. Similarly, Similarly, for our borrowers and real estate tenants, we have granted interest, principal, and rent payment deferrals on a case-by-case basis. During the month of April, we granted payment deferrals of just less than $15 million with additional requests currently under assessment. The month of April saw MFS AUM grow 8% to US $471 billion. Going forward, there are many potential impacts that could result from a prolonged economic downturn and the path the virus might take, which may affect our business in different ways. This includes the impact of markets on our wealth and asset management businesses, the impacts of downgrades and impairments on our asset portfolio, or continue to operate in an even lower for longer interest rate environment. We were actively monitoring these aspects and the, impact, and the impact they may have on our results. To conclude, we came into this pandemic with strong capital and liquidity positions supported by a low financial leverage ratio, strong LICAT ratios, and $2.4 billion in excess cash and other liquid assets at March 31, 2020. This, coupled with our diversified business mix, strong risk management framework, and track record of bringing digital solutions to our clients underpin why we believe we are well-positioned to manage through this situation. With that, I'll turn the call back to Lee to begin the Q&A portion of the call.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Uh, to, to, ensure all that our, to ensure that all of our participants have an opportunity to ask questions on today's call, I would ask each of you, please limit yourselves to one or two questions, and then to re-queue with any additional questions. With that, The Diketria, please poll the participants for questions.
1: Thank you. At this time, I would like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, please press star one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. And your first question comes from the line of John Aiken with Barclays.
4: Um, given the uh, um, the measures taken by the regulator in terms of limiting the uh, dividend increases and in buybacks, um, how do your capital allocation priorities shift? And has there been any guidance from the regulator in terms of restricting potential MA? Uh
2: John, it's Dean. Thanks for your question. Um, I think the, as you note, the OSFI, uh, and Kevin referred to this OSFI, um uh, uh, change the rules, I guess, in March to um, limit uh, dividend increase or restrict dividend increases and in buybacks. I mean, I think the way we think about that is um, buybacks uh, have been uh, one aspect of capital allocation for Sun Life in the past. And, um, and, and of course, right now it is moot because OSFI has uh, put these rules in place. But when that requirement is eventually lifted, and I can't say when, uh, I don't think anybody can say when, but when that requirement is eventually lifted, um, share repurchases will be back in the lineup as one of the tools we use to, to allocate capital. As far as M&A goes, you know, I think, um, uh, the approach, we continue to be, um, looking at opportunities that fit our strategy, that tick all of the boxes that we've talked about before. I think the, in this environment, um, it's natural that we would evaluate those M&A opportunities uh, in light of both our sort of base case scenarios and our severe stress scenarios. As you would expect, we've built scenarios for the business going forward depending on how things unfold, and we would make sure that we think about these opportunities in light of both both the base case and the severe case scenarios. Um, and I would expect that uh, OSFI would want to see those kinds of analyses as, as we go forward um, with any opportunities we might see. So I'll stop there.
4: Thanks, Dean. Just just to reiterate, though, outside of um, your own appetite, no explicit restrictions on m from the regulator.
2: Correct. You, if they had put them in, you would have seen, I, I expect you would have seen them publish that, and you've not seen that.
5: Great. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll recue
1: And your next question comes from the line of Steve Taro with Eight Capital.
6: Thanks very much. A uh, couple of questions, maybe starting with hedging. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the, you know, how pleased or or if there was any issues with the hedging program, just given the extreme volatility we saw this quarter? And and thanks for the expanded disclosure in, in the uh, in the appendix. The I wanted to ask the the fifty seven million of basis risk that's about ten percent of the equity market impact is it is that pretty normal or does that pick up in times of volatility um, yeah, I'll leave it there
3: okay steve it's it's Kevin Stray and I'm going to uh, uh give the first part of this answer and then i'm going to turn it over to to Kevin Morrissey If you look at the that basis changes, it's about half of that is from fund performance, and so the underlying funds uh uh, underperformed the indexes, and about half is from hedging volatility, which kind of gets at your, your first question. And I'm going to let Kevin go into a little bit more detail on how the hedge is performed uh, in addition to that.
7: Hi, Steve. This is Kevin Morrissey. So the I wouldn't, I wouldn't attribute kind of any proportions to the basis risk. You know, it's pretty idiosyncratic on what happens in the quarter. Uh, I would say overall, we were very pleased with the hedging programs. They were uh, quite successful. Uh, all our metrics were were very much in line with our expectations. And uh, to give you a sense for the size of the performance, the, the actuarial liability increased by about a billion in the quarter related to market movements, and, and the hedge payoff covered almost all of that. So we were very pleased with the... the result overall for for the hedging, including the basis risk number.
6: And is there any expectation that hedge costs go higher at all after the the market decline?
7: So, there is uh, an increase, uh, Steve, it's Kevin again. There is an increase in the hedge costs. We have a dynamic hedge program, so uh, there's rebalancing costs. And with higher volatility in the market, uh, the cost did increase but that's kind of a natural consequence uh, to the, the that hedging program and, and it didn't turn out to be a huge number in the quarter, but it is something that was uh, elevated and, and just a natural consequence of having that type of dynamic hedging program.
6: Okay, and then uh, last one, if I could. Uh, the MFS results were very sol- solid, obviously, but I did want to ask about performance. I, I would have thought that the Lipper metrics that you give us regularly would – Rise on a significant market correction, but they—not that they moved uh, a whole lot, but they did deteriorate, especially at the at the shorter end. So, just wondering, is this at all related to the resilience of sort of the Fang stocks? Is is there anything we can take away from that uh, that'd be helpful?
4: Yeah. Good morning, Steve. This is Mike Roberge. Yeah, when you look at, you know, obviously we we direct. Everyone to look at the longer-term numbers. We think that's more um, relevant to uh, what clients are looking at. But what I would say on the on the shorter time frame, um, you know, given our credit focus and fixed income, you know, we were impacted by. Uh, the significant widening of spreads that we saw in March, um, and we would expect over time that, particularly, given the backstop that you know the Fed and other central banks were, have provided, that the yield will come through to the portfolios. Um, the w- the way that that those numbers are constructed are based on a share the A share class, which has distribution fees, and we started showing that a decade plus ago. Um, most of the, that A share class assets, or a lot of them are in fixed income, so it skews the results. When you look at it based on where clients are, the client experience, if I use our institutional shares, which doesn't have the trail commission, the one-year number would be 91% are outperforming. So some of that is just a function of the share clash that we're pulling relative to the industry share class. Um, and so we're not at all concerned about performance. Long-term performance continues to be strong. Where we've seen a little bit of underperformance on the fixed income income side, we think we'll come back over time through yield in the portfolios.
6: Great, that's helpful. Thank you.
1: Your next question comes from Doug Young with Jardins Capital Market.
7: Good morning. Um, just first question,
5: back to the disclosure around eighty to ninety, where April sales were in individual insurance um, and, and wealth around 80 90% of last year's levels. You gave a little bit of color uh, and I didn't catch it all. I apologize um, for Asia. Can you talk a bit more broadly by geography, Canada, US, and a little more granularity in terms of um, what you're seeing?
3: So I'll, I'll start out, uh, Doug, and I'm going to let Leo go in a little bit more detail on, on Asia and Jock uh, so and so can, Dan can. Uh, uh, talk about their business groups as well. But that, that comment was related to overall across the, the company. And what you do see is that jurisdictions that are sort of going back to work and coming out of the, uh, the work-from-home uh, social distancing environments like China, Hong Kong, uh, are picking up. And then the jurisdictions that are experiencing strict quarantine uh, are, are, are declining. We are doing a lot on the digital front to support our uh, agents across Across the world selling including electronic signatures so a lot of regulators uh, were not in favor of electronic signatures up until uh, uh, COVID-19 and they're becoming much more open to that and we think that that's a really really good development for the industry going forward so we saw that happening in, in a bunch of different areas but I'm, I'll let Leo talk a little bit more on the experience in, in Asia and maybe Jacques and Dan can add some color
8: hi Doug it's uh, Leo here So for the experience in Asia, what uh, we saw overall is pretty consistent with what Kevin described uh, at a global level. Uh, For April, our sales were about 80% of last year on the insurance side and about flat to last year on the wealth side. Uh, And um, what uh, we're experiencing is very similar to what Kevin just talked about. Basically, we've got a barbell situation across our different markets. You've got certain markets um, that are uh, out of lockdown um, and where uh, the economy has started to pick up again and where activity is strong. So for example, in international hubs in China and in Vietnam, uh, we're seeing some strong sales. And then you've got other markets like the Philippines, India, Indonesia, and Malaysia, where we're still in uh, in lockdown uh, in lockdown mode. And um, in those markets, uh, we're seeing more depressed sales compared to prior year. Um, so really what you're seeing across the region is um, uh, you've got uh, basically uh, the impact of lockdowns. That's one big factor. The second impact is um, uh, once you're out of lockdown, how quickly uh, sales and the economy pick up again. Uh, on the basis of places like uh, Vietnam or China, we're actually seeing a reasonably strong pickup, uh, and we think uh, you know we've used our time well over the course of Q1 to uh, really strengthen our non-face-to-face capabilities uh, for our advisors as well as our bank uh, bank partners, um, as well as uh, pushing recruiting across the region. So uh, we're um, we're driving sales, uh, but uh, obviously there's some uncertainty. Um, uh, based on the, uh, the economic environment and uh, and the restrictions uh, uh, with social distancing.
9: Uh, Doug, uh, this is Jacques. Maybe I won't repeat uh, all that Leo and, and Kevin have said, but I have to add a bit of color on Canada, as you know, because we have the individual, but also the group uh, businesses. So in GB and GRS, what we are seeing right now his employer is really focused on managing their business during the COVID crisis. So there is indeed a lower level of activity.
0: Sorry, Jock Sorry, Jock to cut you off. Could you maybe put your keyboard away from the phone? It's making quite a loud uh, noise. <laughs> I'm not on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Doug, yeah. Can, I think, it, I think that, me? That, that,
6: that's me. I'll stop typing right, here. Doug, we're impressed with the Doug, speed the of record, your typing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I will be a secretary in my second career here. So yes.
9: <laughs> right. So so Doug, uh, you want me to start at the beginning? I guess I'll I'll just uh, give you some additional points that uh, weren't raised necessarily by Kevin and Leo. And on the group side in Canada, both GB and GRS. What I was saying, Doug, is our our clients are really busy managing their business through covid right now and we are seeing less activity now it's not just less activity for us it's less activity in my view across the industry so so while there's a potential impact on sales what i would expect is similarly uh, that will have a positive impact on retain on retained business so that's the uh, the additional uh, commentary I would give you, as Kevin said, lots of deployment of digital tools and so on. And uh, the April impact has been minimal. Now, as we've all uh, said, the question is how long is this going to last? And and you know, we'll start seeing uh, more of an impact over time. But at the moment, that would be what I would comment on April.
3: And Dan, if you had some, some color for the U.S.?
10: Yeah, let me just add a
3: little bit, Doug.
10: Uh, this is Dan Fishbein on April. Uh, interestingly, what we've seen in each of our businesses in group, in our full scope business, and stop loss uh, was increased sales in April 2020 compared to April 2019. Uh, it, it was up modestly in group, significantly, actually, in full scope, and, and quite significantly in stop loss. Um, You know, some of that is that April maybe tends to be a a somewhat smaller month, so you can have some volatility. Uh, But clearly, we were happy to see that sales are holding up and, you know, even more than that. Now, we are looking very closely at pipeline as well. Uh, In our group business, pipeline is down significantly. uh, So that suggests we could see lower sales in the next few months. Interestingly, the stop-loss pipeline is stable. It has not uh, dropped, suggesting that that's a business where sales activity may very well uh, continue. And as Jacques said, though, if we have lower sales in group, uh, that is an industry-wide phenomenon because human resources departments are very focused, as they should be, on other things right now. So it also means that our existing business wouldn't be going out to, to bid as well. So while we might see lower sales, we would also see lower lapse rates uh, in our own business as well.
3: And Doug, uh, it's Kevin. I, I would uh, Kevin Strain again. I would say that um, uh, while we've given you April, April is one data point, and it's you know six or seven weeks into the pandemic for most of our businesses, our North American businesses, and so it, it, it may not be reflective of what we. We'll see going forward, and it, and it may be different by jurisdiction and by sector, and you know, do you have a second wave, and some of those types of things. So, so we can, you know, what we can say is that we're we're doing everything we can to continue to see sales occur, um, to manage that, to create digital tools, and to to work virtually. Uh, but there can be lots of plausible outcomes uh, going forward around sales, depending on the path of the, the disease and the economy.
11: Perfect. I, I
5: appreciate the fulsome of the answer. Thank you very much.
3: Okay. Thanks, Doug.
1: And your next question comes from the line of Gabriel Deschain of National Bank Financials.
12: Uh, good morning. I'll just push my uh, typewriter aside. Um, First of all, thanks for the uh, disclosures. Um, a lot of uh, enhancements here that are very helpful. Uh, one thing I want to go over in your, uh, you know, COVID nineteen, uh, you know, business impact type of uh, uh, items. You talk about the uh, policy behavior and other, you know, mortality morbidity. We can get my head around that, but uh, you know, can you tell me what you're thinking with regards uh, to lapse and other? Uh, you know, in some cases, bots could be good. Sometimes it could be bad. And then the other, what? What, what do you guys have in mind? Or people? What do you have in mind? So, so,
3: so Gabriel, it, it's it's Kevin, uh, Kevin Strain, and you know, the what, what we're trying to say there is that um, it, we we've been offering uh, premium deferrals, right, and and premium deferrals of up to ninety days, and we've done that in in many locations and extending that, um, and you know, that gives people a chance to. Uh, if they're uh, out of work for a short period of time or on furlough or, or, or those types of things to, to get a chance to react to that and, and uh, get back to paying or get back to work. And so if, if we're under an extended period where there is uh, um, drops in unemployment rates and those types of things and premiums can't get paid, you might expect that there'd be more lapsation. And then on the group benefits business, you know, if you see unemployment and, and terminations, you'll have less members, and and that would also have an impact. So we're, we're and those impacts on the group benefit side uh, will likely be different by sector and jurisdiction. So we're just sort of pointing out that it's too early to say whether this will have a significant impact on laps or maybe uh, changes in investments or those types of things, policy loans, that type of
12: thing. Okay, but but you're. I mean, from a lab standpoint, it could go either way. Like, it could be good, it could be bad. Is that not right? That's that that's correct. It depends on the product, right? Okay. So next next question is on the uh, on credit, and and I'm wondering if there's some sort of a rule of thumb. Um, so we we have a 15 million, 15 million net credit loss uh, experience loss uh, on a on a gross basis. 39 million or 40 million uh, was due to downgrades. Is there any way to quantify, you know, how many bonds uh, that was associated with? Because I really don't know how to connect the dots between downgrades and, and some sort of earnings impact um, it, it, on, the, on the downgrade front especially. And then yield enhancement game, big numbers this quarter, uh, you know, with wider spreads and some asset uh, uh, revaluation. Is that something that could potentially continue at a, at a, at a high rate? Okay,
3: those are it's, it's Kevin Strain again. Those, those are big questions, Gabriel. So I'm going to start with, with credit, and I do want to point out some things. that you know, First, it's important to remember that we are under the Canadian asset liability management method, IFRS 4, and we, we don't follow IFRS 9, and we do have different sort of accounting treatment than the U.S. And if you think about that, our provisions for credit are inside of the actual liabilities, where we hold a reserve where we hold a reserve of 2.7 billion and that includes the best estimate assumption and the PFAT. Um That reserve uh, also includes uh, provisions for credit rating and cre- credit downgrades. and you saw that we had a hit in the quarter of 39 million dollars related to downgrades. That was actually a, a small number of downgrades. So it wasn't, it wasn't a big number. And in fact, in April, we, we continued to just see a small number of actual downgrades. But we, we, that gets provided for. That's part of the $39 million that, that's right. in the reserves. And then in addition to that, we had an impact of a million dollars on impairments. And those impairments are, um, again, a small number of, 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 uh, of names <laughs> that, that that part goes to uh, investment income. And so you know, it's 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 really good to think about uh, these in in two different portions.
12: Mm-hmm. Does, does that help? Yeah. Well, the small number of downgrades. I guess that's the uh, I get the mechanics of how it works. It just uh, yeah, okay. how, how how yeah, and then the yield enhancement.
3: Uh, on the yield enhancements, yeah. So so in in terms of in, investing in AFS gains. Um, you know, there was a, a decline in interest rates, of course, during the quarter, and that allowed us to sell some fixed income assets at gains. Um, we were able to take those gains, and then sometimes, uh, the same time, the, the credit spreads widen, right? And there was some really good names that came out with with very positive credit spreads, and we were uh-huh. able to to, to uh, acquire some fixed income assets that we put against with liabilities that were high quality names with with good credit spreads, and so you actually got Sort of both impacts. You've got the uh, the lower sort of base interest rates creating gains on on the more public uh, sort of uh, uh, investments, more more um, uh, government investments, and then you've got the positive impact of the widening spreads and some really good names we we're able to invest in. Yeah, that's something I could could continue. Well, you know, interestingly, it was it was outsized, of course, in in the quarter. Um, if you looked at the eight quarter average ending this quarter. It's, it, it would have averaged $33 million, and I think that's probably a good way to think about, on average, what we'd expect from investing gains. At the same time, you should remember this quarter that we, we did see the widening of in credit spreads impacting some of our seed investments in fixed income. Uh, we've been seeding some investments in, in Sun Life Capital, uh, and, we've, uh, uh, and we've been seeding some fixed income investments in MFS as part of their strategy. And when the credit spreads widened, um we actually took a loss on those on those investments. So it's a bit of a balance between the investing gains and the uh and the seed capital losses was the impact of the of the credit spreads.
12: Thank you.
1: The next question comes from the line of Minnie Grauman with Cormark
7: Securities. Hi, good morning. A question, we, we know that Asia is ahead of us in terms of dealing with the pandemic and coming out of the lockdowns. So I'm just curious, given the spread of your operations, if you look to Asia as a guide for what's in store for North America for your business, are there any lessons that you can start to draw from that? Uh, Leo, do you want to take that? Yeah, I can,
8: uh, I can try, uh, uh, Dean, uh, although you know sometimes it feels like uh, Asia is now behind North America in many ways, uh, if you look at uh, the the scale and uh, and scope of the the pandemic uh, in North America. Um, but uh, you know definitely we we went into this uh, sooner. Um, uh, and uh, you know what we saw obviously is um, quite different um, responses. Uh, across uh, different markets, uh, even within Asia. I think you're seeing the same thing in North America between states and, and provinces. Um, uh, what uh, we learned from business standpoint is obviously um, uh, in situations where the markets, like Hong Kong, where the markets don't go in complete lockdown or in places like um, like Vietnam, uh, the business has continued to, to run reasonably well advisors are out um, meeting with clients and uh, client demand is actually quite strong. Um, what we're perceiving is that um, uh, the demand for our products have never been stronger. The awareness uh, of uh, their needs by clients has never been stronger. Uh, so, you know, I think that's that's one learning in places where uh, movement is still uh, possible across markets. Um, a second thing that uh, we're seeing is that, um uh, in, uh, in markets like China, where the, the lockdowns were were effective, uh, and where the economy reopened and people went back to work, even though there were social distancing types of norms still in place, uh, we saw a very uh, very sharp rebound in sales. Um, uh, and so you know in markets in North America where that may be the case, I think there's some you know potential, um, uh, optimism to, to see for the industry. Uh, and then the third thing that I'd say is that um, uh, across our markets, we're seeing digital everywhere being the norm. Uh, clients um, are using um, uh, our applications, our portals um, uh, a lot more than before. Our advisors are also leveraging our capabilities a lot more. And um, I'd expect that that uh, behavior will continue uh, post uh, uh, post-crisis, so investment in digital, which is something we've been doing very very actively, um, uh, I think will pay off. And then the final thing that I'd mention is, um, um, you know, unemployment has been going up across markets in Asia, and uh, for us, uh, that's allowed us to uh, continue and be quite aggressive on recruiting of advisors. And it's allowing us to uh, to find very high quality candidates for our uh, our agencies, and so I could see that as also being uh, something that ports over to other markets. Thank you.
2: Operator, can we go to the next question? Yes.
1: Your next question comes from David Mottamaden.
13: Uh, just a question for Dean, uh, just following up on m um, and Just wondering, I guess, how you view MA now compared to the end of 2019, uh, where Sun Life is definitely still in a very solid capital position, and, you know, with $2.4 billion of cash at the holdco and a strong SLA-LiCAT ratio.
6: Valuations
13: have come off a bit uh, since the end of nineteen uh, do you foresee
2: being a bit more active as a result uh, David thanks for your question i would I would say <clears throat> excuse me um, I would say that we continue to be active uh, looking at opportunities around the world across our pillars that fit our strategy and and tick all of our our boxes um, we you know we we entered this as we've said and as you've noted with a very strong position, very strong capital position. Anything we look at, will evaluate it against um, our different scenarios, including a severe stress scenario. One of the things um, that we're watching for is uh, to what extent is the opportunity set widening? And we saw that during the global financial crisis. More things came to market. There were fewer bidders. Uh, the um, Those with strong uh, balance sheets and strong financial positions um, had the capacity uh, to execute on M&A, so it's too soon to um, declare anything on that particular point. But that's something that we're watching for as well. But I, I would say we continue to be active in 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 uh, pursuing opportunities that fit our strategy, and uh, we'll see where that takes us.
13: Understood. Thanks. And and then if I could just ask a question um, for Mike on MFS, just in terms of how we should think about operating expenses within MFS where they were up about 6% year over year if we take out MFS share-based comp. I guess where, where do we think – where should we think about that trending over the rest of the year just given market
6: levels?
4: Yeah, good morning, David. Uh, this is Mike. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, comp – Comp expense, which is our largest expense will come down um, as uh, <clears throat> profitability comes down um, depending on um, where the market settles in for the year we're going to be pretty cautious on obviously discretionary t and e is an expense that's effectively gone to zero um, um, and, and and some of our other distribution costs that support clients have have come down um, and so costs will naturally come down um, we're not looking to to um, cut labor as as part of this, or or cut head count, um, because clearly there's another side to this, and people give us their money to manage for, hopefully a long period of time, and um, so we're going to continue to look through that, and so expenses will come down naturally. Um, uh, but they won't come down, you know, they don't decline quite as much as uh, revenues tend to decline. So there is some negative operating leverage in it. And so I think for the balance of the year, it, it's, it's hard to think about, you know, what earnings look like only because it depends on what the market does and it depends on when the market either goes up or goes down from a timing perspective. And so we think about this looking through, you know, looking over the next three to five years, having an expense base that we think makes sense through that period of time. The market will go up for periods of time. It'll go down for periods of time. And, you know, we can flex down discretionary costs um, um, during periods like this. But the more important thing for us is kind of think about it on a multi-year basis.
13: Got it. Great. Thanks. That, that makes sense. And if I could just sneak one more in, Mike, um, the the $471 billion of AUM uh, at the end of April, and, you know, there was, I guess, some mention in the prepared remarks on the flows in retail, which which are, you know, clearly been very strong. Um, those kind of tapered off at the end of March and were offset by higher institutional uh, flows or offset by that uh, to a large extent. I, I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk about what you've seen through the end of April on both uh, just on the net flows fronts, if we're thinking about both sales and, and then redemption activity.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I would characterize it. I don't know what, what, uh, maybe Kevin can jump in when I'm done, when we've made public, but I would just characterize that, the market, um, and this is true when you look at industry sales in April, um, you know, coming into the year, January and February were decent industry months, and, and we obviously um, outperformed that. March was a big outflow month for the industry. And April, if you look across, the industry looks more normal than what we saw happen in March. And I think it's important to say that, you know, for the quarter is, um, you know, we had record gross sales um for the quarter. We actually had a record gross sales for March relative to other Marches as well. So we continue to see really high activity. When we look at the net flows across the industry, you know, if you look at the top twenty five players in the US, uh there were only three that were net positive in the quarter. MFS was one of those. Um, you know, the other managers tend to be fixed income oriented and we're a multi product selling a lot of equities. So we're clearly gaining share within the marketplace. And when you look year to date of the seven hundred plus providers in the US selling product, we're number three in net sales through the end of the first quarter. And so um, you know we could we continue to, to think that the industry is going to consolidate in those active managers that the that are our counterparties have confidence, and we're seeing that in our business. Um, we saw that in the first quarter. The, the flows across the industry have, has normalized some in April, and if the market stays here, we would expect that to continue to happen.
3: Mike and Kevin, I think you, I, I think you've covered all, all the aspects. I, I would cover. You know, we don't disclose flows on a on a monthly basis, uh, and uh, so I, th- I think uh, we did give the number. And MFS does always publish the number for AUM at the end of each month, and we we disclose that.
13: Great, thank you.
1: Your next question comes, to, comes from the line of Sumit Mahaltra of Scotia Bank.
14: Thanks, good morning. A uh, couple questions on credit to start for, for Kevin. Uh, you touched uh, a little bit on this since you're giving some, some update in April uh, for parts of the business. Would you be able to comment? I think you said there, there's been uh, downgrades have continued, but in, in aggregate, uh, how has credit experience trended? Uh, thus far in Q2. And related to that, when you were going over the slides, you made mention of uh, your your private loan portfolio. Just uh, wondering, because there's different pieces of loans, you have the mortgages, obviously you have some corporate loans. Are these uh, marked in terms of experience the, the same way as uh, the debt securities was in terms of downgrades uh, affect them the most? Or, or is this based more on uh, actual default experience and, and impairments?
3: Okay, so Suman, I'll, I'll start with the first part and then I'm going to let Randy Brown uh, give some more detail on the privates and how we do the ratings on the privates. And as, and as I said, you know, uh, for the first quarter it, in uh, in Q1, we reflected everything we saw in terms of downgrades and impairment and it was a relatively small number. And in April, we, we continued to see uh, a relatively small impact for, for downgrades and impairments. Um, going forward, that can be a lot different, right? Remember that we're just, six or seven weeks into the COVID-19 crisis in North America, which is the biggest part of our balance sheet. And so, you know, we're um, under our accounting treatment, we're reflecting everything we need to and can reflect inside of the actual liabilities and inside of the impairments. And, and those are the numbers that you're seeing. They're relatively small at this point. But it is something we're, we're watching really closely, and that's why we gave the additional information on um on sectors and and on some of the the uh, investment uh, the triple b uh, ratings and those types of things so so maybe i'll turn that over to randy to just add some detail on uh the privates and how we do the the ratings
11: uh thank you kevin and uh thank you for your questions to me this is uh, randy brown so within the private asset classes uh, the process is exactly the same as it is for the public asset classes we look um, really track to the exposures every day, and uh, if there's downgrades, we we look at uh, we look at the security. Also, if there's um, impact on cash flows, then we look at them from an impairment basis. So remember, um, downgrades are more forward-looking; impairments are more real-time. So we continue to follow that process. Um, we did note uh, a couple things Kevin spoke about in his uh, opening remarks. Um, which is uh we have taken, you know, significant opportunity to de-risk the portfolio in prior periods, which included uh um reallocating some credit exposure from publics to privates. The reason for that is that we um we have covenant protection, we're in a senior secured position typically in our private portfolio relative to publics which are unsecured. And so we have a long history of um of experience in the asset class. In originating them internally, and if you look at that, the the um, credit experience is significantly better than comparably rated public bonds.
14: And Randy, I I ask because on page 24 of your supplement, you do give us some um, uh, information on on impairments and allowances for the the mortgage and loan portfolio. Would the privates be be captured in that loan bucket there? Because uh, at least sequentially, it, it doesn't look like there was there was uh, any deterioration at all. Uh, yes. Yes, it would be. All right, that's that's something we'll uh, we'll monitor going going forward. And then last one for me, back to Kevin, uh, on the uh, assumption change in the quarter related to the the widening of credit spreads. Uh, just wanted to make sure I, I understand how this uh, reflects in the experience going forward. So by by making this change, you have uh, essentially maybe this is the wrong term to use, but but mark to market the widening in credit spreads. How would that affect the yield enhancement experience gains that the company has consistently derived from uh, be, being able to, uh, to to pick up additional uh, income in the market? Are, are those two related in any
3: way, or or am I uh, am I not thinking about this correctly? So, so Sumit, I'm going to turn that over to Kevin Morrissey. Okay.
7: Thanks for the question, Sumit. It's Kevin. Uh, So, those two are not related. So, the ACMA change in the quarter was related to the future reinvestments that we were assuming in the valuation. And so, what we did is we increased our provision for adverse deviation related to our best estimate assumption, the greater level of uncertainty given the the, the credit spread volatility. Uh, we felt it was prudent to, to strengthen that a bit. As credit spreads widen, you know, we saw significant gains from investing activity. That will still uh, that will still be available, and that will not be impacted by this assumption. Uh, this assumption is really related to that forward-looking assumption in the actual reserves, and it will release naturally. Uh, if credit spreads revert back to more historic levels as well.
14: That's helpful. Thank you for your time.
1: Our next question comes from the line of Darko Mihalik with RBC Capital Markets.
15: Hi, thank you. Just real quickly, also wanted to sort of focus on credit here. When I look at uh, page 24 of your supplement, uh, you were just talking about it with Sumit, uh, I noticed that the sectoral, Went from 20 million to 21 million quarter over quarter, which in the grand scheme of things is basically immaterial. So the question is is this perhaps something that's sort of on autopilot right now, and then later you do a deeper dive on credit, and there's a potential here uh, that you will have to build a much larger sectoral reserve, say in Q3 when you do your normal deep dive? Or um, is in fact a $21 million sectoral provision against a $50 billion? portfolio actually adequate right
3: now? Darko, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that that question is really for Kevin Morrissey. So I'm going to let Kevin Morrissey uh, start with the answer, and, and Randy and I may add some more detail as he sort of works through that.
7: Hi, Darko. It's Kevin Morrissey. So I'd say from a reserving perspective, a couple things maybe to, to provide a bit of context to, to what we're doing. So you know we are Uh, monitoring both the claims experience from COVID-19 and also the resulting economic um, strains that we're seeing uh, as a result of the pandemic. And when we're setting our assumptions, it's based on a long-term time horizon, and it really is meant to be appropriate through the economic cycle. So although we haven't seen anything significant in terms of actual experience so far in Q1 uh, and in April, it's been fairly modest. Uh, we do still see potential for a wide range of plausible outcomes from the pandemic. So as the experience unfolds, we'll continue to reassess as we did in Q1. Um, However, most of our assumption method changes fall in Q3, um, and we do expect that to be uh, the case of our review this year, but we'll have to monitor and see at this point, uh, you know, we've reflected everything um, that we, Kevin has, has noted.
15: Okay, and, and so that just – so I think we're talking about the same thing, but we are talking about a sectoral provision against potential credit problems,
3: right? Yeah, I think, I think Darko, Kevin was answering the, the broader question of, of all the assumptions, but credit works the same way, right? We're reflecting – what we saw during the quarter, we reflected inside of our, our reserves or inside of our impairments, and it was – you're right, it was a relatively small impact, but COVID was – Two weeks in the quarter, right? A lot of the a lot of the impacts will likely come. I think you were alluding to this uh, in the in the next several the next several quarters, depending on the path of the disease and the economy and the ability of government packages to, to 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 spur the economy and second waves. And there's a whole bunch of things that will that will be factored into the thinking. But what we're trying to reflect is what we actually saw happen, and that's what was reflected at the end of Q1
15: okay okay and, and just real quick follow-up uh, kevin you mentioned that there were very few downgrades again in april um you know sometimes rating agencies are a little slow and as i look at your presentation uh, you have a big chunk of oil and gas sitting at triple b um, aviation hotels i'd imagine there's a good chance that there's a lot of this stuff that's sitting at triple b that will fall um lower can you give me maybe an example using some sort of average duration concept here? Of like, what happens if uh, 100 million uh, bucks of uh, of these exposures drops from triple B to uh, to below or non investment grade status? What is the impact on earnings and capital? Can you give us like, like a general range?
3: Yeah. So again, I think your your question is more for Kevin on that than 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 for Randy. So I'll pass that to Kevin.
7: Darko, it's Kevin Morrissey again. So that's a really difficult question to answer and and really because it has to do with the actual assumptions looking forward right so as you mentioned you know when the ratings changes we look at uh, uh, reassess our expectations around future losses and that really has to do with you know not just the size of the exposure as you mentioned but also the asset class the change in ratings so where did you start where did you land and the duration of the security so Uh, You know, it's a combination of all those factors, so it's not uh, kind of an easy formulaic thing that I could give you a simple answer to.
15: Okay. All right. Thanks very much.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital.
2: Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, Good morning. Uh, I want to talk about e-signature capabilities. I think you'd mentioned that uh, there were some regulatory issues, but you've got them on board. I'm wondering... Uh, where do you have them? uh Where did you just get them on board, and how do they vary between individual and group and maybe just a, a little bit of color as to uh how they vary by geography as well thanks sure. <clears throat> Tom, it's Dean. Thanks for the question um why don't we uh why don't we start with Leo? and then we'll go to Jacques and Dan and we could take you through uh the geographies in both uh retail and group so Leo.
8: Hi, Tom. It's Leo here. Uh, So I can talk a little bit about Asia, and uh, I would actually broaden the topic a bit for Asia. Uh, For us, it's not just about e-signature capabilities, uh, but it's also about whether the regulators have allowed us um, to conduct non-face-to-face sales. So you've got markets where you can do an e-signature, but you need the advisor to witness the e-signature face-to-face. Uh, So it's a little bit more complicated than just uh, having e-signature. So with with that said, um, basically, uh, if I kind of go through different markets, um, in Hong Kong, we've got e-signature, and currently what uh, the regulators have allowed us to do is to conduct um, non-face-to-face transactions using these capabilities for a subset of products. Uh, so you can use it for par, you know, protection products, UL, but uh, not yet for investment-linked products like VUL. So there's still some constraints in the context of Hong Kong, but they've uh, significantly loosened uh, the parameters so far. Uh, if you go over to the Philippines, um, we currently can do digital signatures, um, uh, and uh, the regulators um, are allowing non-face-to-face. Uh, but only on a temporary basis. Uh, so right now, they've authorized um, they've authorized insurers uh, uh, to do this until June 30th, I believe, uh, or uh, the extension of uh, enhanced community quarantine, whichever comes last. Now they're likely to extend that as we learn from the situation, but that's a kind of a moving target. Um, then you've got Malaysia where uh, e-signatures are authorized. Um, but um, you, need, uh, you need a physical copy of the documents. And right now the regulators have loosened the requirements for, uh, for a temporary period of time. Uh, and it's not clear whether they're gonna make that permanent or not. And then uh, probably the most restrictive right now is Indonesia, um, where um, um, uh, e-signature is, uh, uh, is allowed but you need the process to be face-to-face for uh, investment-linked products, which are a big chunk of the market, you can do non-face-to-face transactions uh, for uh, for protect, pure protection types of products. Uh, but it's it's a smaller chunk of uh, of the volume of sales of the industry. And then if I look at Vietnam, uh, you can do both non-face-to-face and uh, and e-signature. Both are authorized by regulators there. Um, then you've got China and India, where uh, where also the the electronic uh, capabilities are um, uh, are more available. Uh, the regulators have basically authorized uh, those, those processes. So it really depends uh, geography to geography. Uh, in terms of uh, our own capabilities, basically we're currently geared up to um, uh, to take advantage of uh, what the regulators have um, uh, allowed across these different markets. And uh, what we're currently working on is um, um, uh, basically smoothing out uh, the client experience and uh, the advisor experience across each of these markets um, to make, um, you know, for example, the automatic uh, loading of data easier, the, the different stages of the process uh, move uh, more smoothly from one stage to the other, and so on.
14: Over to Jacques.
9: Tom uh, Jacques here in Canada, uh, as you know, in Canada, we've been on a strong uh, digital journey for a while now, and you know what this crisis has led to in my view, is a much stronger focus on digital tools and capabilities on the part of advisors. You know clients are worried they want to engage and they want to talk to their advisors. This is a, certainly a time where the value of advice, the value of having a trusted person to help you navigate is very strong. So we're using Zoom a lot to the point that Leo was making on non-face-to-face. Essentially, our advisors today can sit down with over Zoom with their client and essentially go from what I would call A to Z, so identification of need, doing a financial plan, all the way to... Completion and fulfilling of the of the products so so it's very much uh, it's very much in that uh, in that vein and we're making very good use of it and that's one of the reasons uh, why we've continued to see relatively good sales uh, through April
2: and it's it's worth adding that that capability has been in place uh, for the past couple of years and uh, so we've we've had a chance to road test it and you know, integrate it with uh, sales tools, e-signature, and so on. So it's um, that's allowed uh, Canada to to move quickly. Um, Dan, so the group contract. Sorry to interrupt, the group group oh, contracts and every, and the individual contracts can all be signed the e-signature.
9: Yeah, it's a good question on group. I mean, we're certainly, I think, exchanging with clients uh, electronically uh, pieces of paper and then scanning and sending signatures. Uh, the, the, I, I don't think the, the contracts are the same, Tom, but we can get back to you on that.
11: Okay. And is there anything in the U.S.? Is, that, is
5: What about the employee benefit contracts? Can they all be done uh, e-signature?
10: Yeah, Tom, this e-s- is Dan. Um, we actually had e-signatures already in place for a number of things, uh, and we expanded, pretty, expanded it pretty dramatically uh, since we've gone to work from home. Uh, we use a, a third-party vendor that has very good capabilities for this so that we can now uh, accept the e-signature for virtually anything, including contracts, claim submissions, uh, really virtually anything at this point. Uh, and you know, as Leo and Jacques said, we've also taken this as an opportunity to significantly expand other digital capabilities. Uh, in late March, we introduced a new set of uh, digital online capabilities through our SunWorks claim system, that's for disability. We also have just introduced a full mobile platform for Maxwell. Maxwell already had a mobile uh, site, but it, you could not do full enrollment soup to nuts. Now you can. Uh, and we're going to be leveraging the Maxwell platform quite a bit for uh, enrollment. In fact, we're getting a lot of interest in that. And we've also found, as Jacques mentioned, through Zoom, that we can really do virtually anything that we were doing face-to-face. We've been doing finalist sales presentations. We've been doing enrollment meetings. Uh, we've been doing meetings with brokers, et cetera. Uh, so I think we're, we're well-equipped to continue the business forward with all of these tools.
2: Okay, thanks for the color.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Mario Mendonca, with TD Securities.
5: Good afternoon. Um, Kevin, maybe uh, just real quickly here on the provision, or, yeah, the credit provision associated with asset impairment, the $2.7 billion. That's on a base of, I think, fixed income securities or fixed income investments of, call it $134 billion. So, uh, first of all, are those the right numbers to be looking at? Th- those are the comparable things, the 2.7 is on the $134 billion of bonds and mortgages and loans.
3: So, Mary, I think your question is again for Kevin Morrissey, so I'll pass it to, to Kevin Morrissey.
7: Mario, yes, that's right. That is the, the right base for that number.
5: And can you help me just think that through between best estimate and FAD? Because I think of the P FAD as something you're going to have to leave there and best estimates that can be released as you did this quarter. Can you give me the breakdown between those two?
7: Sure, I'll provide you a bit more detail on that. So maybe just first of all, some context on, on the 2.7. That includes the PAR and non-PAR business. And when you think about the split of that, um, you're right that there's a best estimate piece and a PFAD, and the best estimate's about 60% of that total, and the, the PFAD's about 40 What I would maybe advise a bit different from what you said is it, both the PFAD and the best estimate that unwind or release from the reserve quarterly, so that happens naturally. The, the best estimate portion uh, goes against um, actual experience, and that's reported in the credit line of our source of earnings, and the unwind of the PFAD portion of that risk is also on a quarterly basis, and that happens through the expected profit line in the source of earnings.
5: So, that, that's, a, that's a meaningful number, the 60, 60% or even if you look at the it it's Like, if you look at it in total, it's about 2% of the of the exposure what does that really imply about annualized loss rates, then, uh, on a best estimate basis?
7: Well, when you think about it, if you look at uh, the disclosure that we provided in terms of the credit release for the quarter, you could see that that was $25 million, the best estimate portion. So that's kind of after-tax number for the quarter. So if you annualize that and, and convert it to pre-tax, it's about $135 million uh, per year.
5: And that would be the annualized expected best estimate credit losses in that fixed income portfolio. So I could just back with right.
7: that Yeah, so that that's right. The only piece I'd add to that, Mario, is that's for the non par only. So that was related to the shareholder income. So that okay. uh, 135 is the non par piece. Yeah. yeah. I can so do the there, math
3: myself. It, yeah, it's Kevin Strain. I might I might just point you to the uh, what what you see is um, the experience coming through in any in any given quarter when it's different from that twenty five and if you remember q one of last year we had the pg and e experience right? right and and then that, that came through in the so the experience comes through in the quarter when it's in excess of the of the twenty five million uh, release and that's you also see that this quarter uh, with the downgrades of of thirty nine and the impairment of one right
5: i I'm, I'm well, trying to get
3: a what's affected. Yeah, you can, and you can trend that over a long period of time, and you would have seen that we typically trended positive uh, to that 25 million, which is probably what you would expect, right? Because credit is uh, one, it's idiosyncratic, but it also relates to uh, will go up in 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 times of trouble and will be uh, less when things are sort of more normalized. Um, Yeah, I I think you also need to think about. Yeah, you also need to think about our splits between. How the private fixed income works versus the the publics, and and there's a lot of elements in the privates where uh, you know we potentially have collateral and and uh, uh, workout arrangements with with the with the, um, uh, with the debt hold, with with the debtee and those types of things, right? So so it is uh, it is more complicated than just the big number. You have to look at the pieces, and that's part of the reason we tried to give the sectoral information.
5: Okay, so now I, get it. I think I have a good understanding of what's expected on the fixed income side. The equities are also very large, and you can kind of back into the effect. It was about an 18% decline in the fair value of your equity portfolios. Uh, are there any triggers that you would use that would necessarily require an impairment on the equities? Like, let's say, down 25% for an X amount of time, X quarters. Is there any sort of formulated trigger that would necess- necessitate an impairment on the equities?
3: Uh, I'll, I'm going to let Kevin jump in and, and answer it in more detail, but we've given you the sensitivity on the equities, and in, inside of our um, uh, reserves, we're, we're assuming an 8% return on the equities. Are you getting at the return question, or are you getting at sort of a, a impairment trigger? No, I'm just saying impairments, uh, equities are down a bunch, and uh, I would have expected
5: some impairments on your equities given how much equities were down in the quarter.
3: So I'll, I'll, so, let yeah. Kevin answer, I'll let Kevin answer that, but the, the, the downturn in the equity is fully reflected, right?
5: Well, no, not if it's offset by the liability. Like, if, uh, what I'm saying is if the equities are down but the liability is also down, then there's no effect on your earnings.
7: Yeah, so, Mario, it's Kevin Morrissey. So, the, the impact on the equities does does come through. Um, uh, so, we do see uh, that full amount coming through and, and reflected in earnings in the quarter. Uh, when you, you mentioned a, a trigger point, so I'd say that there's, there's kind of two pieces. There's an accounting side and, a, and an actuarial reserve side. And the accounting side, there are triggers around reflecting impairments on surplus assets that are held that are held AFS. So, uh, so you can have those triggered. On the actuarial reserving side, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the way we look at that is really a long-term kind of through the cycle assumption, and so we would expect to see. Uh, volatility and gains and losses and, and we wouldn't normally kind of reset that long-term expectation unless you know there was a, a fundamental change in our forward-looking assumptions
3: okay I'll follow up thank you okay and I I just wanted to point out that uh, we're we're closing in on 1130 so we're going to make this a, the last question on the call but we will be available after the call if, if people have further questions
1: your next question comes from the line of scott chan with canaccord genuity
11: thanks for fitting me in I'll, I'll just keep it to one question uh mike just going back to mfs and and if i look at the gross sales quarterly trajectory uh over the last several quarters it's it's increased nicely and and in q1 uh, you hit almost 50 billion uh, i think it was up 65 percent year over year in constant currency what was the main driver of that? Was there like a big mandate, or were there certain products that um, that that helped facilitate that uh, that big year over gain?
4: Yeah. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for the question. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've seen, as I said earlier, one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in the retail channel, is um, the firms that we do business with continue to pare down their provider lists, and so. Firms going to fewer funds, fewer providers, and what we've seen is we're a net beneficiary almost every time that we see that happen. And so, Uh, If you look at calendar year last year, I think we did something like, if you look at U.S. products, a billion dollars of sales in 16 different products and gross sales. So the diversity of our sales has just been incredible. And so we're seeing um, flows in the U.S. in U.S. equity categories across the capital spectrum. We're seeing it in non-U.S. equity categories. We're seeing it in fixed income categories. And that is suggestive of firms that are putting multiple products on their shelf. And so we've benefited over the last year and a half. We see it accelerating in this environment. Um, to the concentration of the business and fewer managers, and um, um, we continue to see that in our business.
11: Okay, that's helpful, Mike. Next slide.
0: Okay, I guess that ends our call. It is just close to 1130, so I would like to thank all of our participants today, and if there are any additional questions, as Kevin said, we will be available after the call. Should you wish to listen to the rebroadcast, it will be available on our website later this afternoon. Thank you, and have a good day.
1: This concludes today's call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.
0: Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.